0: Welcome to the Loins of History. My name is Colin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jay. And last week, we talked about the New Deal and if it really actually even worked for us. And this week, we're going to pick up where we left off. So, Jay, it seemed that socialism was kind of falling out of favor after World War II. Can you tell me
1: a little bit about that? Here we are in our series on capitalism and socialism in the united states and we in last week we talked about hey this is the effect the new deal had whether or not it actually worked did world war ii or the new deal or neither get us out of the great depression here we are post world war ii and socialism is no longer that cool anymore uh However, capitalism, you know, liberal democracy in the West, World War II, like we won. Yay. <laughs> Dicker tape parades in New York City. Everything's, everything's gravy, right? Uh, and economically speaking, yeah, that kind of was the case. You know, there were sh- still lots of political issues, but uh, the economies in the United States and in, the, and in Europe – uh, collectively what, you know, what we refer to as the West, uh, things are improving quite a bit. Uh, so the main, the main things we're going to talk about in this episode, kind of the big meta narrative, if you will, is that Keynes is King and Keynes's main thing was government spending, uh, that, that government spending, uh, is what got us out of the great depression. It's what we should continue to do. So kind of over the next 30 40 years we see government spending rapidly increase regardless of political party in office and that high government spending is financed by high taxes so that's kind of key takeaway number 1 number 2 is that the the problem with this is that inflation begins to increase and if you're not if you're not careful with the money supply And in the 70s, we kind of had this perfect storm of we came off the gold standard. There was multiple energy crises and inflation started going through the roof. That led a new economic theory to kind of gain ground. Third takeaway here is that high inflation is what brought in a new economic theory called supply side supply side economics. Keynesianism is also called demand side economics. Uh, supply side economics became really popular in the Reagan administration, so it's also known as Reaganomics. Our listeners might be familiar with trickle down economics, which is only one part of Reaganomics, and usually used by critics. But anyway, those are our three takeaways. High government spending, uh, inflation begins to break the system. And number three brought in a new, uh, a new economic system to called Reaganomics to counter this whole thing.
0: So Jay, go, going back to the beginning of that, where we left off talked when we talked about the New Deal last time, and even back to the Gilded Age, it seemed like labor unions became very popular. Um, the idea that we've got to collectivize as workers, you know, workers of the world unite, that was seemed very popular. I think that it was like 33% of workers were were in a union of some sort. In the 50s, that went down to like 10%. So, keeping those key takeaways in mind and the fact that we're in this economic boom, do you think that a collectivist idea became unfashionable or unpopular because because of that,
1: yeah, absolutely. And it's really hard when when the everyday citizen's quality of life is improving. It's really hard to criticize the current system. And we kind of see when when there's times of economic crises and normal people's plight go, you know, is worse. Then all of a sudden, those same people we start questioning <laughs> the current system, right? Uh, and what we see after World War II was, yes, there was an economic boom, but it was different than the economic boom in the United States that, you know, started in during the, the first and second industrial revolution because normal, like average people's lives were improving as opposed to just the wealthy, uh, you know, where coal miners were still killing themselves in the mines. Uh, that happened to a much lesser extent, and we we see the you know what's called the American dream. You know your house, your the white, white picket kids fence. and your white picket fence, yeah. Um, which white picket fences are ugly, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I see a house with a white picket fence, I'm like, God, who came up? With well, this? you know what? You know what's great
0: with. Uh, Uh, in a very capitalistic society, you can go through and you can get a different kind of fence. You have that choice. (laughs) Because this is America. You can do what you want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. I think you don't really start to see a lot of unrest or call for change or any radicalization until the 60s with Vietnam and the civil rights era. But even that, it's not economic in You know, I feel like a lot of the socialists slash anarchists were mostly fringe, like the Weather Underground, university students, and some of these fringe movements, and then obviously the anti-war sentiment, but that was like geopolitical. It wasn't economic. It wasn't we are workers being exploited. It is we are young people. We don't want to go fight in Vietnam, or, you know, we feel like we are being... You know the civil rights era. We are, you know, African Americans. We feel like there's a problem in the country. It wasn't economic in nature. It was geopolitical. Yeah.
1: Well, so I'm going to say something maybe fairly controversial here. Oh, okay. The, Bring the controversy. And this is this is very much a sidebar from the main thrust of this episode. But I think improving economic conditions for the black community is what enabled the civil rights movement uh, on the whole. Because as you know, prior to the, the 50s and the 60s,, um, you know, the black community didn't have much of a voice. They were extremely poor, um, were not organized at all. And then all of a sudden in the 50s and the 60s, you start seeing leaders show up and you start seeing, um, an organizations developed designed to give the black community a voice and you know i'm not trying to say the black community got super rich but you did you know there was black wall street there were major business like not big business but um business owners th- well the unemployment- improving yeah improving economic conditions allowed them to organize right the poverty rate
0: went from something in the high 80s to the low 40s or even high 30s within a couple of years so that's a that's a massive economic shift so things may not have been great but you're right it, it definitely allowed some organization and some money within the community to help fund some leaders in a movement little leaders yeah. like malcolm x and martin luther king
1: jr right and You know the the main thrust of the civil rights movement, in my mind, that was so blatantly obvious was that black people and white people were clearly not treated the same in society. You know, just thinking about the water fountains, the fact that one says "colored" and one says "white," like, like that that seems unthinkable. But uh, anyway, point being is yes, I think there were economic factors and it was actually improving economic conditions that allowed the civil rights movement to take place.
0: Uh, for the better, it, well, by the it's way. interesting, and that's a pretty good bringing that uh, that sidebar on the civil rights movement back to economics. If you you were talking about Keynesian economics and government spend government spending, LBJ was one of the biggest government spenders, and he really kicked off a lot of government spending programs that continue to this day. And he, I think, is quoted as saying, uh, "I'm an F, I'm a New Deal." Uh, politician at heart. And even though he was not maybe socially liberal and actually in his personal life, he was more than likely a very racist and sexist man. On the surface, he was an advocate for the civil rights movement. And a lot of his programs were aimed at um, improving the lives of African-Americans as well as just the poor. And he had a war on poverty with the Great Society program. So, things like Medicare, Medicaid, all of those had their start. He had education, um, investments in ed- education and housing as well. Um, the downside to that was um, there's a lot of debate on the actual success of them. If you look at the numbers and how much money we've spent on the war on poverty, the poverty rate compared to, you know, from now to the 60s is actually about the same. Um, yep. So, there's there's a lot of debate on this government spending on me personally, I think this is kind of, you know, he had this new deal 2.0 and I think this is really what kicked it off. I know Nixon was also a you know, a Keynesian uh economist and he loved government spending, but LBJ really started the the ball rolling again after World War II.
1: Yeah, and this is good. So, let's talk about how government, federal government policy adapted because it's it's Interesting that socialism declined. Um, I don't. I don't think we mentioned this before. But uh, at the end of World War II, labor there were about thirty three percent of all American workers were unionized. Uh, where currently only ten percent of American workers are unionized. So this is a trend that has even continued to today. But socialism declines, but capitalism through keynesian economics uh, and through the the democratic party's policies have adopted a lot of like assumptions of socialism without technically becoming socialists themselves so we talked about this in our last episode with fdr fdr was not a socialist however the new deal had some socialist foundations to it (laughs) yeah
0: the great society programs i mean it is a war on poverty it's kind of like um when we talked about fdr's economic um his economic new deal where he said you know basically assuring a minimum standard of living and that is going to come from the government that's basically what lbj did and yes there's still private property so you're not a, a a marxist but by and large, you are still having the government assure you some rights, and those rights come from the government. And that right is a minimum standard of living provided to you by the taxpayer.
1: Yeah, the I had a buddy of mine um, who I love and respect, by the way. Uh, but he was debating with me one day about, um, you know, I was talking about the socialist, Marxist undercurrents in a lot of. Um, uh, thinking in American politics and economics today. And one of his uh, counter arguments was, Jay, no one is talking about seizing the means of production, which from a pure cap or sorry from a pure pure Marxist standpoint, that's true. Like, you know Marx said, you know, we got to seize the means of production, we have to abolish private property, etc. My my counter argument to that, or my thought, is you don't have to seize the means of production if, you know, going back to our definition of power last week, if the government, like, allows you to, like, yeah, you own it, but I'm going to make you completely dependent upon me for everything through regulation through control of the monetary supply through uh trade regulations uh etc then okay the government may not own the means of production but they're by, but they're by default controlling the means of production that's basically socialism
0: Don't pay your taxes and see how long you own those means of production. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're right. I mean, it's a little gray area, but yeah. It it is. And that is – that's still something that's kind of hard to discuss. But as soon as the government starts talking about nationalizing uh, mines and oil and things like that, we've crossed into new territory at that point.
1: Yeah. And – I think one of the main things I would like our listeners to have a key takeaway for just our entire series, right? Our entire series of capitalism and socialism here in the United States is that really during this period, the post World War II era, there is a major um, view in the United States, not just held by politicians and academics, but held across the board for everyday citizens is that we look to the government to stabilize the economy. We look to the government to provide for us in the economy. We, we want the government that if there is a problem, we want the government to fix it. This is essentially socialist thinking. This is not free enterprise. This is not Adam Smith style capitalism. Uh, Where private enterprise are the main drivers for like, when we see a problem, uh, the individual fixes it like, Oh, there needs to be a school here. I'll start a school. Oh, there needs to be a hospital here. I'll, you know, we'll form a hospital so on and so forth. Uh, And this, this, this view, hey, government fix everything, one of the problems that it creates is that the government is fallible and incapable of fixing all the problems, and in fact, creates more problems itself. And we saw we saw this in the 70s, and we're seeing it today.
0: It's kind of an interesting, uh, you know, the markets are efficient, quote unquote. That's, that's one of the great, every MBA student probably hears that in their economics class, that the market is efficient. Uh, or, you know, this is really a debate between like, well, what's more efficient at solving a problem, the market ended up by itself or the government intervening. So, and it's not, this is not really to comment right or wrong. This is simply a look at the historical facts of um, this was happening. This was the sentiment. Here's what it led to, and here's how it affects us today. So it's not just an academic exercise of, well, this is exactly what LBJ did, but um, what LBJ and Nixon did, and how it affects today, and that's kind of the mission of of the loins of history. It's connecting to the past to the present. So, diatribe aside, LBJ increased government spending, and that leads. And then LBJ not so much, not very popular by the time he left office. He got us in a quagmire in Vietnam. All this government spending really didn't go over that well. Nixon wins. What did Nixon do to the economy? A lot of key events happened. Yeah,
1: yeah. Let's 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 zoom into the seventies here because it's the seventies are interesting because you're right. Nixon was a Republican, and after him, Gerald Ford was a Republican. Uh, but then Carter was a Democrat. So we've got both political parties. However, they have nearly identical economic theories.
0: <laughs> conservative. They're very conservative so- on paper and maybe socially, but not economically speaking, because. You know, I feel yeah. like it's kind of tough to be a true, a true follower of Keynes and be say that I'm really conservative because you, know, you, you require a lot of government spending to do so.
1: Yeah, they may not be fiscally conservative. Uh, yes, that's the word. So in in the 70s, um, a lot of things happened, and I'm going to kind of go through this fairly quickly. So one uh, in 1971. We came off the gold standard, so that was probably the big thing that Nixon did. Was he was like, "Hey, we are no longer um, making the the dollar uh, equivalent to this many." uh, There's a very specific gold measurement. Uh, It's like something tons for, uh, you know, one dollar equals this minute this much gold.
0: We came off and we T O
1: N N E S too, by the way. Yeah. uh, Yes, uh, which Brits and Americans don't measure tons by the same, by the way. Uh, Fun fact. Anyway, uh, US tons are technically called short tons, uh, whereas a normal ton is a Brit ton. Anyway, we'll remember
0: that in 20 years at a a bar trivia.
1: (laughs) Yeah, fun fact impress your friends. I think the British ton, T O N N E, S, something like that, is actually 2,200 pounds, whereas the American were just 2,000, which is why it's called a short time. Anyway, (laughs) um, uh, see, you learn all kinds of things here at the Lawrence of History. Uh, (laughs) uh, He took us off the gold standard which effectively ended Bretton Woods. So really digging into our American uh, US history uh, textbooks from high school. The Bretton Woods Agreement was after World War II, where some of the major economic players basically said, hey, Japan, uh, the UK... A lot of, of France, a lot of other European nations, um, not the Soviet Union, by the way, they all came together and said, hey, we are going. our currencies are going to come off the gold standard, and our new standard is going to be the U.S. dollar, and the U.S. dollar is going to remain on uh, the gold standard. What this did is it made the U.S. dollar the, the global reserve currency. The intent here was to stabilize uh, currency exchange rates relative to the dollar. I think they had to keep it like within 1% uh, relative to the dollar to try to stabilize the economy and not create volatility. When the US came off the gold standard in 1971, this de facto killed uh, Bretton Woods because now... uh, the the U.S. dollar was subject to wild inflation, theoretically deflation, uh, and I think Bretton Woods didn't formally end until like '76, like five years later. But uh, coming off the gold standard and the for, you know the informal ending of Bretton Woods happened in '71. There were also two major energy, at least two major energy crises, also in the '70s. Energy, without going into too too deep a uh, rabbit trail here, but energy is one of those sectors of the economy that has a disproportionate impact on all other sectors of the economy, primarily because it's literally what fuels <laughs> the entire economy, right? Um, and we've seen this today. In 1973, there was a major oil crisis, and in uh, 1979, there was a big energy crisis, very big picture what caused both of these crises was controlling the amount of production from middle eastern countries also known as opec so and it's interesting because
0: we look at today right now there is some strained relation between biden the Biden administration and opec and opec basically coming out and saying hey by the way we're actually going to cut our production based on this meeting. And in 1973, it started with an embargo. So countries that supported the uh, Israel and the Yom Kippur war, they were like, hey, we're going to put an oil embargo on you. And immediately prices skyrocket because the energy sector is, especially with oil is speculative. So basically these companies are like, oh, wow, we're not going to be, we're not going to have oil. Price is going to go through the roof, even though it may not Technically, take effect and for a few weeks or even months, price goes up because they're gonna they're gonna speculate and, and insulate themselves from that. And then in 1979, Iran there was the Iranian Revolution, so Iran was no longer producing as much oil. And again, that one was actually more about the price increase based on speculation because all these oil companies thought we're not going to have as much oil, even though I think the actual overall amount of oil available decreased by like less than 10%. Um, They jacked up prices like three or four times, anticipating a much worse oil situation. All that to say, it's interesting to look back at the seventies in this oil crisis and then see like today, we're still having fights with OPEC and you don't tiptoe or they get mad at you. uh, They can cut your production and really hurt the economy because the American economy and, and politically speaking, people vote based on gas prices a lot of times. So it's just interesting to see that this is happening again at these key times. You know, Jay, the other thing you brought up with leaving Bretton Woods and leaving the gold standard—that is a contentious point amongst a lot of economists, especially the libertarian community, um, who is, I'm sure, is a big fan of my criticism, but. <laughs> By and large, in 19 when we did that, uh, there's a lot going on in 1971 between U.S. Chinese relations and economically speaking, we left the gold standard because there's only a finite supply of gold available. <clears throat> Meaning that if we want to increase the money supply, we have to increase the gold supply as well. Mm-hmm. And if we want to fuel economic growth, the growth that we had was not; it was no longer simply confined to. The United States, it was an international period of economic growth and ties. So between the US and the Chinese, we had agreements, trade agreements that would be ratified over the coming decades where the Chinese would begin to produce the goods that we would then buy and finance. And so you had this interlocking or this interwoven economic system that was international. It's no longer nationalized where you're trading between states, but you're trading between nations now. And in order to fund the growth that was occurring, you need more money. Well, in order to get more money, you have to print more money. You can't just print more money if you're on the gold standard. So. We decided to leave that and go to what is called a fiat currency, which is a paper currency backed by you know, a government entity in the United States. That government entity is the United States government, and the United States government says, you have this one dollar that is worth it is worth what the tax. Pay- the, it is backed by the taxpayer. So the the ability of the U.S. taxpayer and the U.S. economy to pay back this debt that we owe you. So that's how we get into fiat currency. And the problem with fiat currency can be that a consumers can lose faith in that currency because the government is mismanaging it, or they're like, "Hey, there's actually no real value behind this." Um, And that's bad. Or the government can say, Hey, we don't really know what we're doing. And we, for whatever reason, we're going to, we're going to print a lot more money. And that can contribute to hyperinflation or just inflation in general, which hurts the consumer and can create this really bad situation. Um, that we're going to see later in the seventies that Jay's going to talk about. But the point being, I, I think it's, it's really critical if we look there because of the buying power, uh, I'm looking at a stat right now, $70 in 1971 would be worth like 543 right now. Um, so since we left the gold standard, it's like your buying power went down because of all these inflationary periods that we're going to go over. So um, just important to look at, and it sets up a lot of what we're going to talk about.
1: No, Colin, this is a great point. And governments want inflation. <laughs> and and here's and here's why. And this is something that did not I didn't learn this until I don't know, maybe a year ago when I was, you know, looking at my own finances and going like, how the heck, like what's the best way to protect my own financial situation against the inflation that we're looking at right now. And uh they're So there's, I'm going to do a a free shout out, not sponsored by this guy at all, but there's a YouTube channel called Economics Explained. It sounds like an Aussie. It's fantastic. Really good stuff. So if you're into YouTube, go check out Economics Explained. Anyway, he has this really good um, uh, YouTube video on what to do in inflation. The, if you are in debt, inflation helps you. So I'll, I'll give an example uh, and this is and I'm taking this from the economics explained guy say say you bought a house let's just for easy math you bought a house for a hundred thousand dollars here um if inflation keeps going up year after year for your 30year mortgage your 30-year loan um the you your your money essentially, keeps growing right so you you get more money as time goes on from and with that money you can use it to pay back your loan because the price of your loan doesn't go up it's fixed it's fixed at the year that you bought it uh but as inflation increases The money supply increases and you can use those extra dollars to pay off your debt. So, if you know, in today, if you bought a house for a hundred thousand dollars and hyperinflation hits tomorrow, and all of a sudden there's, um, you know, like say we're in the interwar years of Germany and there's literally millions of marks laying around, you can you know can burn it to feed your home. All of a sudden, your ability to pay off your debt just became really easy because the debt on your home didn't go up. So, you know, one way to look at it is if you're in debt, inflation is actually a good thing because you can pay off your debt easier. Bringing this back to why governments like inflation is that, you know, as we've talked about in this episode is that the government's in debt folks <laughs> the government's in big time debt <laughs> we're in debt up to our eyeballs
0: <laughs> 31 trillion dollars
1: yeah there was a great commercial back in the day uh where this guy was like standing by a pool and he was like hey man how's it going he's like he's like i'm in debt up to my eyeballs <laughs> that's what that's what the government's doing like uh we're in a lot of debt so governments like to hang out around 3 to th- sorry 2 to 3% inf- inflation because it makes it easier for the government to pay off its debts um that's that's kind of why with increased government spending you have increased government debt and that's why inflation's a good thing. The problem is, is the government isn't always able to control inflation, cough, cough, to what we're going through right now.
0: It's funny. I, I think it was a meme or somebody posted it on Twitter or whatever I saw, and I, I got a chuckle out of it. they said the biggest financial flex right now was buying a home in 2021 for like 2.5 interest, because you're mm-hmm. right, buying that home now at 2.5% interest, or excuse me, buying it then at 2.5% interest, if inflation is 8%, and let's say that you do have a job that can give you a pay raise or something even if you even if it's 6% and you're not necessarily keeping up with inflation there's that is a 4% delta between the amount of money being supplied through inflation and what you owe on that house so it is actually very favorable if you bought a home at the right time conversely in the 70s and what we're starting to see now with interest rates going up um it can be really difficult, especially if you get in into a fixed situation. Now you can always refinance later and that you can, that has its own challenges, but you can, but if you have to put 20% interest down for the first couple of years for your home, that can be really mm-hmm. difficult and it can kill the housing market. The housing market was so hot because interest rates were so low and there's all this essentially yep. free money. So, it caused this boom in the housing market. And and we're starting to see it today with, you know, as it's, I think it's over 7% now is the average uh, interest rate that you can get on a home. You're seeing that, that housing market dip. And I'm even noticing homes stay on the market longer and longer and longer. Mm-hmm. Well, in the 70s, mm-hmm. imagine paying 15 to 20% interest on a home. It's no wonder we got into this period that's called stagflation. Yep. Jay, do you want to talk about stagflation a yeah, little absolutely.
1: bit? Yeah, absolutely. No, this is this is a great this is a great transition to the Carter years. So, we talked about Bretton Woods, we talked about coming off the gold standard. We talked about the oil and the energy crises in the 70s. Uh let's talk about stagflation, which is a term that comes up a lot today, but it was actually first coined in during the Carter years um and st- stagflation is an economic conundrum where inflation is increasing but the economy so like think gdp gnp either stagnates or what's going on right now is it's actually we're in a in a contraction right now um which i never mind i'm not going to go off on that tangent we're in a recession folks <laughs> That, that's the short of my tangent. Is we're in a we're in a recession. Uh, it's an it's a midterm year, so people are going to try to uh, gaslight you on that one. But anyway, uh, we are in an economic recession. Inflation is still hanging out around eight ish uh, percent right now. Uh, that's why people talk about uh, stagflation. Obviously, this is problematic. A contracting economy increasing inf- inflation common sense tells you, uh, that this is bad. So this is, uh, this is what brings in Reaganomics. So not, we're going to focus on the economic reasons for why Reagan was elected and kind of what he did. There was a lot of other step, a lot of other stuff going on. There's the Iran hostage crisis. There's just the general cold war, uh, going on right now. Uh, I think we've talked about that in other episodes. I'm sure we'll talk about it in future ones. But economically speaking, stagflation was one of the main reasons why Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. In addition to stagflation, we also in the 70s began seeing a major trade deficit uh, here in the United States. And this has only grown to the present day. What a trade deficit is, is the United States is currently importing more goods than it's exporting the reason's the reason why that's bad as you can imagine is if you if you are buying <laughs> more things than you're producing so if you're a if you're a wage laborer which most of us are right? Like you're producing money for your home, but yet you're spending more. You would be in a trade. That's a very rough uh, illustration for what a trade deficit is. The United States is buying more things than it's selling. And we've been in this hole since the seventies and we've never come out of it. Fun fact, we are currently... Uh, with our ju- just our top 10 trading partners in 2021, we are in a $915 billion trade deficit, of which over one third of that. So that's our top 10 trading partners. Over one third of that, $355 billion of that is China alone. China, our trade deficit with China is more than like the next five combined uh, which fun fact the next five are Mexico, Vietnam, Germany uh, Japan and Ireland but In Ireland, interesting we, yeah. what are we importing potatoes? no I'm just kidding We probably- <laughs>
0: whiskey <laughs> whiskey. <laughs> whiskey and beer thank you Ireland <laughs> it's interesting that it's with, it's with you know, I guess, China, I mean, China is a massive country, booming econo- well, the economy. Well, their economy was booming, you know, that we went off the gold standard in 1971. That is where Nixon, the Nixon administration, especially Kissinger, started opening up relations with China. And I had to think, and it's it's pretty well documented that th- they had this in mind as well, this idea of this interwoven economies between the Chinese and the US and this is what we have now this massive trade deficit financed based on fiat currency so yeah interesting to see so
1: yeah absolutely okay so let's transition to reaganomics because reaganomics marks the the first major departure from keynesian style economics that we've seen since keynesian became cool uh, in the Roosevelt administration in the 30s. There are, there are two main um, policy tangibles for Reaganomics, and that is deregulation and tax cuts. The, the reason why these are two things is because another name for Reaganomics is supply-side economics. This is in contrast to Keynesianism, which Keynes... Is about demand side economics. He believed that increasing government spending would increase demand, which would then improve the economy, uh, uh, etc. You know, we go into those details in our last uh, two episodes. I think demand side economics and and kind of why inflation during the '70s and Carter years is important to keep in mind here. Is that supply side economics is intended primarily to combat inflation? So, uh, I, I. I- um, forgive me, I, I forget who said this, but one of the key ten or one of the key explanations for Reaganomics was that we're going to produce our way out of inflation. Hence, the supply side economics. Um, so on the deregulation piece, uh, kind of at the tail end of the Carter administration of doing to be fair, one of the main criticism or one of the criticisms of Reaganomics was that he actually didn't start the deregulation process. That's actually true. There were some, there were some, uh, congressional bills that deregulated certain sectors of the economy prior to the Reagan administration and the Carter administration. The first one was the airline industry, um, But it really did – this continued in force during the Reagan years. And again, to be clear, Reagan's not a member of Congress and can't pass bills. So a lot of this was the Republican uh, Congress during the Reagan years, uh, not necessarily Reagan himself. But the policy was we're going to deregulate – Certain sectors of industry, in order to make them more efficient, to encourage them to produce uh, either the good or service uh, that they're that they're providing. Um, another, so that's kind of the deregulation piece. Then there's the tax cuts, which is really the heart and soul, the bread and butter uh, of Reaganomics, and the reason why tax cuts. Are important to supply-side economics is that when you when you cut both the corporate and the individual tax rate, that does a few different things. For the corporate tax rate, it it increases the labor supply. So another another way of saying that is when it's cheaper, to do business, i.e., you're not just getting the corporate tax rate is just like a, like a you know a lop off your income if you're a business, right? Uh, if it's cheaper to do business, one of the main, if not the main, expenses that all businesses face is the cost of their employees. So, if it's cheaper to do business, you can hire more employees. So, cor- cutting the corporate tax rate increases employment, and it causes the businesses to grow, which allows them to produce more of either the good or service that they're providing.
0: I know everyone is very critical of major corporations, myself included. That being said, any business owner knows that cash is king. Anybody that's in the business world knows that cash is king. And if you have more cash, you can invest more. And companies, if you're right. If you suddenly went to them and said, you are now going to be able to keep 5 to 10% more money that you make, you would immediately turn around and say, okay, we need to hire more people because we're going to invest significantly in new technology, new products. We're going to try and make more because not only do we have more money, but our um, customers are going to have more money. So if you're in B2B sales or B2C sales, whatever, suddenly there's more money out there and you know, everybody else is going to be buying. So you're like, we need to invest so we can make some of that money. And it creates a feedback loop, but and you're also right. People are also the most expensive piece of any business. So, <laughs> people are yeah. like, corporations should pay their fair share. Look, I get it. There's, there's. This is not going to be a criticism or a, a discussion of fairness or equity or anything like that for corporations and their tax rate. But the fact is that the more money that they have, the more money that they will spend. That's a right. million dollars to a ceo a million dollars a pay raise for a ceo at j p morgan chase is nothing when they have literally trillions of dollars under assets under management so a small corporate yeah. tax means they're going to go hire more if the ceo gets another million dollars i promise you they're investing billions of dollars back in so the point yeah. is it's the, effective uh,
1: <laughs> yeah what's what's interesting here is r- you know these cutting the tax rates like it's undeniable that there were positive impacts on the economy the criticism of Recon- of reaganomics isn't actually and i'm being slightly obtuse here but the criticism of reagan economic or reaganomics is not actually an economic criticism it's a social and political criticism the the biggest c- Criticism is the increase in economic inequality, because the rich got a lot richer at a faster rate than everyday citizens. But everyday citizens also got to keep more of their money.
0: You know, I <laughs> so think it's it- like,
1: how dare you raise or lower taxes because the rich earned an extra billion dollars this year, and I only earned an extra three, you know, three thousand dollars this year. So it's it it, it's like wait a minute. So what? You got three three thousand extra dollars.
0: Yeah, it it is. You know, and it's it's funny. That's not fair. (laughs) Well, what is fair? You know, that's the thing. It, It gets into this question of like, what is economic fairness? Should everybody have the same, no matter what? If you were to superimpose this criticism, like, well, the the wealthy are getting wealthier, and the you know the poor are only getting poorer so much, and okay, they superimpose that, that criticism onto a picture of like these ultra wealthy wall street offices that are, you know, I think Donald Trump had the, the gold office and, you know, they have these mega millions and it's, it's just this big, look how much money I have and look how much power I have. And they kind of vilified and they tried to, they tried to tie all that in as like, okay, these are greedy, Industrialists—they're the new Rockefellers. Look at these—this gaudy office that they bought with all their millions. They super, then they tie that to to Reagan, and a lot of it was, to be honest, kind of a political hit because yes, the poor did not get wealthy as fast, but the quality of life for the majority of Americans increased. It's like right, yeah. The
1: the lower income folks grew. As a matter of fact, uh, from 1981, I believe to 1983, approximately 3.8 million people rose above the poverty level for their annual income. 3.8 million people. Like, I'm sorry, but the conversation, the criticism about increasing economic inequality, like I literally don't care because the poor, there's less poor. (laughs) They're making more money like why do they have to make equal amount amounts of money to the the super rich when i'm sorry but they're not they're not doing the same level of work they're not taking the same level of risks like they don't deserve the increasing money relative to the major If
0: anyone producers. if anyone read the book recommendation from a few weeks ago Atlas shrugged it probably took you a month to do it because it's very long and Kind of heavy in certain parts, but it's a great <laughs> book. There is a there is a a line, and Milton Friedman also says this. So I don't know who said it first, Ayn Rand or Milton or Milton Friedman. But um, when one of the main characters, they're investigating what happened to twentieth century motor company, which is like this state of the art, huge company, kind of like GM at the time. Um, you know, they're trying to investigate why it crashed, and basically. Everybody, it, it became a communist company and it failed within months. But uh, there was a slogan that they had there toward the end. It said, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. I think that summarizes the idea of fairness that a lot of people had that were critical of Reaganomics and they thought, well – They don't need that much money. They don't deserve that much money. And you get into this, well, what is equity? What is fairness? What is, who deserves more money? And like you said, does the person that takes more risk and have a little bit more inherent ability to make money deserve more or less? Does this person who is poor need more, you know, do they deserve more money? Um, Essentially that tagline, if you've read the book, it, it leads to a failure. Nobody works. Nobody wants to produce anything because the people that need get more and the people that work, Actually, get less. So yeah. it, it creates this conundrum, and it en- ends up destroying one of the largest companies. And I, there's a lot of truth behind that. You're, well, who deserves more? Well, maybe if you just—if it comes down to it—the simplest way is like, well, whoever produces more gets more. That's kind of what the 80s were at, the, at that point. Not perfect. Not a perfect system. Going to go ahead and qualify yeah. that. There it could have been
1: done better in some places, but well, by and large, more people got wealthier. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of the imperfections of Reaganomics here. Uh, but but before we do, let's let's give the details on inflation because I, I let's try to or I tried to say like the main driver of Reaganomics was stagflation. Inflation basically evaporated <laughs> because of Reaganomics in 1980 the inflation rate was 13.5%. folks it i don't even know if it touched 9% uh currently like everyone's screaming bloody murder with how bad inflation is right now i think it only uh got up to 9 8 or 9% or something like that it's 8.2 it.
0: it's 8.2% uh right now and that has only been about a year that's and a half. Rate, that's, the aver- yeah. that's the average inflation rate. That's the average that's the average inflation. It's only been like that for about a year. If you were to go back to the 70s, mm-hmm. it was like seven or eight years of inflation at that rate. Bad and inflation, then it hits yeah, thir- yeah it hits thirteen point five percent. Just to show you to contrast the economic pain that people were feeling in the seventies.
1: So Reagan got elected in nineteen eighty. He took office in January of eighty one. By nineteen eighty-three, inflation was three percent. Three percent, which is where the that's where the Fed tries to target inflation between two to three percent. So, it worked. Like objectively speaking, it worked. We have been trying to combat inflation for two years now, and hasn't happened. So, there you go. Um, the the Dow- Fed doesn't.
0: The Fed has to increase rates to do so, but they don't want to because that's going to cause. A little bit of pain in the short term well, and it's very political. Well, the
1: current Fed wants to. Jerome <laughs> well, Powell is pretty adamant about increasing rates right now. <laughs> well, he
0: needs to do it a lot more than what he's actually doing. That's part of the criticism and a lot of people know-
1: well- yeah, yeah, there's a political. I don't fight. know if I agree with that. There's he is he's doing major increases, and as a matter of fact, the international community, because the dollar still the reserve currency, is literally screaming bloody murder right now, uh, because they have not increased uh, their interest rates as much, um, and we have, and now this is one of the reasons why the dollar uh, is at parity with the euro and the pound right now. We digress. um Another thing that I want to talk about for Reaganomics here is the Dow, which the Dow Jones is an industrial average, right? The Dow in, from 1982 to 1987, so basically the gist of Reagan's term, the Dow grew by 350%. And that's without the help of inflation, by the way. Inflation was gone down, you know, it'd been down to 2% or sorry, 3% in 83. So from 82 to 87, the Dow went up 350%. I'm sorry, but that's like, that's incredible to happen that fast. A lot of times you'll hear, you know, armchair economists like myself and Colin here, <laughs> Talk about like, well, it takes time for new changes in economic policy to uh, impact uh, the economy. And a lot of times, um, administrations are actually benefiting off of their predecessor's policy because it takes time. No, that is garbage. What we see right here is that these, the things that the Carter administration had been trying to do didn't work. The Keynesian created, created inflation. Stagflation.
0: It created stagflation. It, right. The economy and was re- stagnant and inflation was going up. You couldn't buy anything and you didn't make more money. Plain and simple. Right.
1: Reaganomics lifted millions of people out of poverty. Literally millions. Grew the grew the stock market uh, by three hundred and fifty percent. Think of all the investments that just exploded during that time, and it completely evaporated inflation. I'm sorry, folks, but that's a good economic policy. However, it did have its some drawbacks. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk about that real quick. And here's and here's the one my one criticism of Reaganomics, which interestingly comes from more, you know, fiscal conservatives like myself. And it's, and it doesn't come from Keynesian economics because they actually like this kind of thing. Reagan did not decrease government spending. And because government spending stayed consistent or actually slightly grew in certain areas, um, the federal debt exploded as a matter of fact from 1981 to 1988 the federal debt tripled and in 1981 the debt to gdp was 31 percent so the government federal total federal debt was 31 percent of gdp at the end of the reagan years it was 50 percent of gdp that's nothing compared to and now <laughs> that is nothing compared to now but like reagan did not do anything to reverse that trend Interestingly enough, you know who did? This is slightly outside the topic of our Bill episode. Clinton. Bill Slick Willie Clinton. <laughs> I'll tell you what, he did. Uh, Bill yeah, Clinton he- helped increase the budget. Now he did it by raising taxes, and that's another thing. But when well, it comes to so government George, spending, so
0: did uh so did George Bush Sr. That was why he didn't get reelected. Read my lips. No new taxes. Boom. He pissed off Ross Perot and Ross Perot took away 10% of his vote. That's a topic yeah. for another day. But
1: Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll get that in a future one. But the, the my main criticism is because Reagan was not able to reduce government spending um, and he was – most importantly and this is something for i think for conservatives to keep in mind excuse me is that reagan was huge on military spending um, now
0: the star wars program the, legendary
1: right the benefit was that we basically obliterated the the russians in the cold war uh by outspending them in defense spending to where the you know they were like they broke their own economy trying to keep up with us but when you know when you look at it from an economic perspective this was this was not the beginning nor is it the 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 current problems but he didn't do anything to help the problem right now f- currently 2022 federal debt to um uh, gdp is 138%. so we are we are we are spending the government or sorry, total government debt is uh, over 138 percent of GDP. So what that essentially what that means is if the government didn't spend a dime, and the entire GDP was used to pay off our debt, we would we would pay off most of it in a year, but there would still be 38 percent left over. That's kind of what that means. Um, so we this is only problematic when people start losing confidence in the us government's ability to repay its debt which frankly we're not there so this is the, this is the last thing i'll say before we wrap up here when when you see the the national debt ticker like 31 trillion dollars um people panic and grandstand about like we're in all this debt and is it a problem? Is it not a problem? Like it's, it's not a problem that nobody can't collect it. <laughs> well, Ula's it's not that they can't collect, collect it. It's that we have the ability to pay it off. Like and our so like the US government is not insolvent. So when you talk about
0: um mm, that's a good way de- to put it
1: in Right, debt-to-equity ratios and, and, and solvency calculations. If you look at the federal government, we're not insolvent. The, or the federal government is solvent, i.e. it has the ability with high confidence to pay off its debts. So, yes, we're in $31 trillion of debt, but we make a lot of freaking money. <laughs> if we wanted so, to,
0: we could pay it off.
1: Right. It's only when really what, especially when we start talking debt to equity ratios, what we're really talking about here is risk. And we are going into a much riskier situation as our debt to GDP is, in you know, increased to 138%, but, um, it's not, it's kind of like inflation, right? Like eight or 9%, 10%, 12% inflation is bad, but, Hyperinflation is what wrecks Economy so as long as you're not like in This inflation is doubling Every hour which is really like Well
0: so in hyperinflation it, Post-World War II Hungary that happened uh, And then in Zimbabwe and I think the early 2000s I think they came out with like a, a trillion dollar bill or something like that And it was like basically worthless because yep. it was. Du- yeah. You're right it was doubling almost Every hour which yeah, For any of you math whizzes out there you will Reach a trillion dollars <laughs> Very quickly
1: very quickly yeah. So that's hyperinflation and that's where you got to hit the reset button and everybody kind of hates life for a while. But, um, anyway, that's kind of, that's kind of Reaganomics, uh, in a nutshell. So, so just to kind of recap everything that we've talked about here, and that is because Keynes is King post-World War II government spending was in vogue. <laughs> it was fashionable. It still is by the way, but cause everyone's a little Keynesian, but, uh, Government spending explodes. A lot of these are on social programs. So the the participation of socialists decline because times are good. Everything's great. Uh, however, some cracks in the system started to develop in the seventies. You know, we came off the gold standard, which by the way, I think was a good decision, but there's, there's negative trade-offs to it. Um, we had an oil crisis in 73 another energy crisis in 79, Uh, the trade deficit begins and stagflation hits. And when stagflation hits, people want to change. And that's where you get Ronnie Reagan and, and yes, that was on purpose. That's a movie quote. Uh, I would love for someone to tell me what, which movie that came from. Uh, uh, we get Reaganomics, lower taxes, deregulation, um, Paul Volcker, we didn't really go into detail on him, but in the Fed, they try to reduce the money supply through high interest rates. And yes, there's trade-offs. What we're going to see is that, uh, I think what we're going to talk about in one of our last episodes, kind of getting close to the present day in this episode, what we'll see here in the future was that Reaganomics did not stick in the same way that Keynes uh, philosophy did. And we'll, we'll get more into our present day. Well, Jay, thanks.
0: That was a that was a great episode. We covered a lot of topics. We're starting to, to get into the more current events and trying to tie everything together with our series on socialism, capitalism in the United States. I hope this series has been uh, beneficial in helping you understand how the American economy has evolved and how we got to the point we're in today. Uh, we're gonna finish this out, this series this mini series out uh, next week when we tie it all together, we we'll talk about some things like Bill Clinton balancing the budget, re- the Great Recession. In um, the aftermath and fall out of that, and then bring it up to today. And then we'll move on to a new series on US and Chinese relations and the history behind that. So, if you like what you we're doing, please support us on Patreon. Take a look at our social media pages. We're trying to be more active and engaging. Um, so, if you want to engage with us on Facebook, feel free to do so, or Twitter and Instagram. We're both on there um, trying to post more uh, just to get involved, post some facts. And interact with our fans. So, and if you like what we're doing, give us a five-star review that definitely helps the algorithm and gets the message out there on Spotify, Apple podcasts, podcast addict, things like that. So with all that being said, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lords of History. Have a great day and we'll see you next week.